Wasn't that great? Wow, what a great year 2018 has been. Thank you for being such an awesome part of making this church so successful in this past year. We are following God, doing our very best to follow God, and it's been simply incredible to be one of the pastors here on staff and to see so many stories, some of which reflected in that video. Thank you for your contributions, your time, your energy, your prayers, and for all that you've done to make 2018 such a great year. My name is Adrian. I'm one of the pastors here at church. How do you like singing those Christmas carols? Good to be in the season, yeah. You know, one of those strategic initiatives that you just heard up there is called, is called Equip to Lead. And uh, that initiative goes like this, from church dependent to equip to lead. And can I just tell you as pastor here how grateful I am, how grateful I was these past two Sundays to be able to sit back and listen to Aaron Ferguson and Jordan Heinrichsen as they gave wonderful messages here on Sunday morning. I mean, to see young pastors developing as equippers themselves. And that's what we want. That's the kind of thing that we want across this church, that this would not be a church that is dependent on any individual, that this would not be a church that's dependent on any family, not on any board, but on all of us together being equipped to lead in our most important relationships for the glory of God till Christ returns. That's what we're after here, because each and every one of you our ministers, if you are a follower of Christ today, you are a minister every bit as much as I am a minister. And we're going after this together. I want to give a little uh, piece of good news. Yesterday, we had the newest uh, member of our church family born, Miller Jean Ferguson. You'll see a picture of her on the screen. That's Aaron and Allison Ferguson. Not there. I think we have it. There we go. There we go. Far cuter. Yeah. Miller Jean Ferguson, born yesterday morning. And Pastor Aaron, who leads our college and young adult ministries, and Allison are doing well, and we rejoice with them as they are now new parents. Good luck! <laughs> Pray for them. <laughs> All right. You know, it's been said that a pastor's job is to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable, warns the pastor. <laughs> now, these two things a good pastor must always do, comfort those who are hurting, point them to the hope that we have in Christ, point them to loving community, remind them again and again that they matter so deeply to God, they matter so deeply to us that we will empathize, we will be by their side, we will mourn with those who mourn, we'll partner where we can. But also to afflict those who have gotten really, really comfortable. And that can come to all of us, can't it? It can come to everyone on stage, and it can come to everyone in this audience. Because we live in a time and a place where we have more than any other people in all of history. And so comfort comes to us quite easily. This morning, well, we're going to hear a message from a very faithful pastor. His name is John, the Apostle John. And he's going to reach, tell a message, share a message that was given to him by revelation from Jesus himself. 
And we are in the book of Revelation, last two chapters, last two episodes of our God Story, Our Story series. And in Revelation today, we'll be in chapters 2 and 3, in which John writes this series of letters, series of warnings to seven different churches in Asia Minor. And then next week, we'll be in the end of Revelation, in which we look at the end that Jesus speaks of. And that's how we'll finish up God's story, our story. But, but here in these first couple chapters of Revelation chapter 2 and 3, the Apostle John is our author. And John was a faithful pastor, wonderful pastor, wonderful missionary. He was there with Jesus during his public ministry across those three and a half years. And when the other apostles fled at Jesus' crucifixion, where was John? He was right there at the cross, along with a number of other faithful women who were also disciples of Jesus. John was there. And as Jesus was on the cross, he looked down at John and said, John, would you take care of my mother as your mother? Jesus was caring for his mom as he was dying. And John said yes, and and he did that. And then he went on to continue to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, by which sinners like us are pardoned and welcomed into God's family for the next number of years. And the other disciples were all killed for their faith as they preached that same gospel. But John wasn't killed. He was exiled to a little island called Patmos by the emperor Domitian. And Patmos was not Hawaii. Think Guantanamo Bay. He's exiled there for treason because he said, Jesus is Lord and Caesar is not. A day at the beach, it wasn't. And he spent the rest of his days on this isolated island. He's already written the gospel uh, attributed to his name, the gospel of John. He's already written the first three letters, first, second, and third John. And now he has just enough ink left in his pen to write the 22 chapters of Revelation that he has received from Jesus. Again, in these first chapters of Revelation, his aim is this. He looks over these seven churches in what is called Asia Minor back then. Today it would be modern-day Turkey. And back then, there were seven clusters of churches in seven different cities that were, there were many Christians there. Today, there's almost no Christians in Turkey. It's a Muslim-dominated region. But back then, there were many. And so John surveys it as he hears from Jesus. He gets this vision from Jesus, and he gives these specific instructions to these seven different churches. And he's situated in this little island right here in the Mediterranean Sea, Sorry, Matt. Little island here in the Mediterranean Sea, and he's writing to these seven different churches scattered here across Asia Minor, and he says things like this to the church in Pergamum. You've been faithful, you've persevered, but you've tolerated false teachers that have come in and infiltrated the the ranks of the church, and now they're leading you astray. Warning, warning. He says to the church in Philadelphia, you have always been the city of brotherly love, and you still are. Well done. Keep it up. Keep loving God and keep loving people so well as you have, Philadelphia. He says to the church in Laodicea, you used to be hot, but now you're lukewarm. And I wish you'd either be hot or cold so I knew where you stood. As it is right now, I feel like when I think of you. 
That's what he says to Laodicea. These are the words of Jesus. And yet even so, Jesus says to the church in Laodicea, who he reserves his harshest comments for, his sternest warning for, I stand at the door and I knock. And if anyone is willing to open that door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. We will dine together. This is the the love of God, no matter how far from God you may be today. That's what he says to Laodicea. That's what he'd say to us. It makes me wonder, what would Jesus say, what would the Apostle John say if he was to write a few short paragraphs about Carnegie Free Church? What would they be? What would he include? Where would there be warnings? Where would there be comfort and encouragement? Where would there be affliction where he challenges us? To make it even a little bit more personal, I've asked this last week, what would a few choice paragraphs from Jesus be about me? About where I've missed the mark a little bit or about where he might comfort me a bit. What would they be for you? What John is going to do here as he receives this revelation from Jesus is speak to the church, these seven different churches, and give these warnings. And I think there's one particular church that is particularly poignant for us. It's the letter to the church in Ephesus. And so if you want to turn with me in your Bible to Revelation chapter 2, it's the very back of your Bible, last book in the Scriptures. You'll find this up on the screen as we go as well. But you'll notice in your Bible that these words are in red. In all likely, if you have one of those uh, Bibles that highlight the words of Jesus in red. These come from Jesus because John is sharing, well, what's been given to him from Jesus. And I think these words to the church in Ephesus are instructive for us here at Carnegie Free. Not because this is exactly where we are. I don't think this is exactly where we are. But I think this is a warning to churches like ours that have a great history It's a challenge to us not to rest on our laurels. Would you hear the word of the Lord? Revelation 2, verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. There's an angel over this church in Ephesus. Makes me wonder, could it be possible there's a protective angel over our church? It's it's possible, I don't know. There's angels over these seven churches that are helping to protect. And one with the seven stars is Jesus. The golden lampstands are the churches. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people. That you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not. And you have found them to be false. You have persevered, and you have endured hardships for my name, and you have not grown weary. Well done, he says. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love that you had at first. You've forsaken your first love. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things that you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and I will remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear what the Spirit of God says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is the paradise of God. Would you pray with me? 
Father, we ask that you would teach us from this word. We recognize that this is your word, dear God, and uh, some of it might apply to us. There might be a word of comfort in this passage for some of us here today. And there might be a word of challenge for some of us as well. And so we ask every time that we open up your word, every time that we go to prayer, would you speak, Lord, for we, your servants, are listening. We invite you to teach us. We invite you to correct us if we've gotten off course in any way. We invite you to comfort and encourage us. We say that we need you. Thank you, Lord, for your love. We give ourselves to you now in Christ's name. Amen. You know, the banner that I get from this letter to the church in Ephesus is this. A great history is no guarantee of a great future. A great history is no guarantee of a great future. Would you say that with me? A great history is no guarantee of a great future. Now, conversely, a bad history is no guarantee of a bad future. I pray that you know. Amen? A bad history is no guarantee of a bad history either. There's always fresh starts for us in God. But one of the things that we learn from the church in Ephesus is this. Their great history was no guarantee for a great future. The church in Ephesus had more influence and had more things going for it than any other New Testament church. It had more influence from leading apostles than any other New Testament church. The church of Ephesus had the Apostle Paul with them for nearly three years as he was building up elders and leaders in that church as he spent the better part of three years with them during his third missionary journey. Then after that, Paul specifically mentored a young man named Timothy And Timothy then led the church in Ephesus for a number of years. And Paul wrote two letters to Timothy instructing him how to lead these specific people. Fast forward another decade and the author John, again the Apostle John, writes in the 80s three more letters to the church in Ephesus, instructing them on how to deal with challenges that have come into their church. And John is helping to lead that church as well. They had Paul They had Timothy, they had John. And yet by A.D. 92 and 93, this passage is telling us, you've worked really hard and you've persevered. Well done. But you've lost your first love. And if you don't repent of that, you will lose my presence from your church. That's the essential message that he's giving. Now, this is a powerful warning to a church like ours because we have a great history here, don't we? This church started in 1889, just short of 140 years ago now. We've had 140 years without a single church split. We've had our hard times, but we've worked through them. We've uh, made mistakes, but we have asked for forgiveness, and we have forgiven each other. In the last 50 years, we've had exactly four senior pastors. We have an amazing history at this church of faithful Bible teaching, of faithfulness to kids' ministries and youth ministries and building up the next generation and great worship ministries and outreach ministries of all different kinds. And so the warning to a church like us is do not rest on your laurels. I'm looking at families here that I know have been serious about loving God and loving others really well, 
across generations. I mean, 20, 30, 40 years I look out over some people today, and the warning for people like us who have an amazing spiritual heritage is you cannot walk on your mother's faith. You cannot live by your father's faith. It's got to be your own because a great history is no guarantee for a great future. And so what John wants to do here for his church in Ephesus is to give a few different clues, a few different warnings for how to move them back to their first love and also to commend them for the good things that they have done. And the first one that he gives is this, remember your first love. He says to the church in Ephesus, you've done so many things well, but this is the issue. You have forgotten about your first love. You need to go back and remember your first love once again. Raise, raise your hands with me if you remember the ministry organization called Promise Keepers. Anyone? Okay, at least half the audience. I saw your hands go up. Remembers the organization Promise Keepers. This is a wonderful ministry organization for about a generation of men. And I look back on that movement in Promise Keepers that re-inflamed so many men for the passion of God and re-inflamed so many men to be serious as husbands and serious as fathers and to be serious about racial reconciliation. And I give thanks for Promise Keepers and the amazing work that they did. But I remember this one time that I went to one of their events that they had this kind of goofy ministry going on. And I say this after all of those nice compliments I just gave. But I went to, this, went to this, this event, and you could uh, fill out a card in which you could purchase in advance some flowers for your wife in order that those flowers would arrive for your wife on her birthday, on Mother's Day, and on, her, and on your anniversary day. And you could have those sent to her and pay for them ahead of time without even thinking about it. Men, you like that? Okay, it frees us from having to remember the, the dates. Um, ladies, you like that? Uh, like you may like that until you realize he didn't actually remember. He just has you on autopilot. I like how romantic, come on. But the thing about that is the same exact thing can happen in our relationship with God. That we get on autopilot in our relationship with God, busy doing all kinds of things, but we have forgotten our first love. And the warning here is, Ephesians, you've been busy, you've done lots of good things, you've been working hard, you've been persevering. Look again at these words, verse 2, I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people. They removed wicked teachings from the church that were far short of the gospel message. Then verse three, you have persevered and you have endured hardships for my name. Well done. Yet, I hold this against you, you have forsaken the love that you had at first. I dare say perhaps they were spiritually busy, but they were not spiritually deep. They got going in all kinds of things, but in the process of having to remove false teachers from the church, which is really, really hard to do and very painful, in the process of having to persevere through some hard times, they, they lost their first love. They got off course. And so John's message to them is go back and remember. You ever pause and just remember how great your love for God was at first? 
Like, do you ever sit down with a journal, with a pen, and with paper, and write down the kinds of things that God has done in your life, that he made you vulnerable and uh, open to him at the beginning, and, and, and you wanted his word, and you wanted this, like, the, the, the sweetest of milk. He said, give me some more of this, and, and you were teachable to God at the very beginning. Do, do you remember that? Like, do you remember the experience of when you realize for the first time that you're forgiven and loved by Father God who created the universe and yet he loved you? And you realize that your sins need not define you from this point forward. I, I, I go back and I remember oftentimes how my sins were like scarlet letters over my chest. And that's the only way to describe it. They were disgusting. And, and I, I, I hate my old sinful life. And I look back at it. God, I can't believe you would forgive me of all of that. And I think oftentimes about when I was 19 years old and I went to Pastor Randy Madison's office at Hastings E Free Church and I asked him, this is what I've done, am I going to hell? Because I knew that my sins were that bad against a holy God. And then I remember learning from him the grace of God and saying, wow, God would forgive me like that and over the Next years to be stitched back together by God in which he removes those scarlet letters one by one from my chest and he heals me from the inside out and then covers me with a white blanket of snow such that God doesn't look at my past any longer. He looks at Jesus and me. Do you remember that? Go back and remember. Like, I mean, do you remember when you were first seized by the power of the greatest affection ever such that you couldn't help but talk about God. You couldn't help but tell others about the greatness of our God. That's what John has in mind when he says, return to your first love. Remember how great your first love was. Remember when you were seized by God's love. I mean, John really got this. He didn't just have good doctrine. He didn't write all this great doctrine about the grace and the holiness and the omnipotence and omnipresence of God. I mean, he, he had right doctrine, but when he describes himself in his gospel as the disciple whom Jesus loved, like, is that all about doctrine? No, that's the experience. That's an experience with the loveliness, the beauty, the kindness, the patience, the forgiveness of God. Do you know you could call yourself the disciple whom Jesus loved? Like, that seems kind of cocky to say, doesn't it? But that's what he says of himself repeatedly in the Gospel of John. And so, as Jesus is instructing the church in Ephesus, he's just saying, you know, just take some time. Go back. Return to your first love. Remember where you were. Remember how far you have fallen and rekindle that flame that you had at first. And then I think he would say to us, reject counterfeits. Keep rejecting the counterfeits that have come your way. This is one of the things that the Ephesians did so well. They rejected counterfeits that came their way. They weeded them out. One of the groups that's mentioned here in verse 6 is the Nicolaitans. It says, you hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. You say, well, what is that? What do the Nicolaitans believe? Well, the Nicolaitans well, would go down to the temple to the goddess Diana, which is part of Ephesus, and Ephesus was a great port city in uh, the Mediterranean, had over a quarter million people 
way back in 90 AD, a quarter million people. It was a hip, culturally relevant, shaping city for all of the Mediterranean world and even into Asia. And in it was one of the greatest wonders of the ancient world, one of the seven great wonders of the ancient world. It was a temple to the goddess Diana, which was 200 yards in length, 60 feet high, 100 columns all over the place, and they would sacrifice animals to this mother goddess there all the time. And the Nicolaitans would take part in that. And then they would come back in the church. Ooh, you better reject that, right? Quite obviously. And the Nicolaitans would say, it doesn't really matter what you do with your body. Like, live and let live. I mean, you can sleep with whoever you want so long as you're not hurting anyone. Does that sound familiar? This is what the Nicolaitans, well, were teaching. And so while we in this church would welcome anyone with any belief, with any previous behavior into this church, we wouldn't allow those kinds of things to be taught in this church. And so what John is saying, well done, you have rejected those kinds of teachings. And we are to do the same. We are to reject all false teachings that are less than the gospel of Christ and reject all false pleasures that are not given to us in the way that the world might partake of them. You hear what I'm going? You hear what I'm saying? So you want to aim dead center for the will of God. Imagine with me that this garage back here is the dead center will of God. And I promise you, if you aim at the dead center will of God and you achieve that, you will have plenty of pleasure in life. But the thing of it is, is we aim at the dead center will of God. Well, okay, we're doing really, really well. But what happens if you get 10% off course? Well, when you're 10% off course here, it's pretty easy to come back and, and start again. But if you're 10% off course for a long distance, you end up in a hurt. Any golfers in here? Okay, I like to play golf. I wouldn't call myself a golfer. But just imagine with me, you're able to hit a 300-yard drive like Ken Suntberg is able to. And, and his go in the fairway <laughs> sometimes. <laughs> he and I talk trash on the golf course. All right, so, okay. A 300-yard drive, and you're aiming dead center for the middle of the fairway. But say you're 10% off on that 300-yard drive. You're now 30 yards away from your destination, which in all likelihood is out of bounds, lost. Okay, so you start here, but 10% doesn't seem like much at first. But by the time it gets there 300 yards down the road, it's, it's lost. It's way out of bounds. Now, let me illustrate. I have a good friend who was a pastor for the better part of 20 years. And he was a faithful pastor who worked hard and loved the Lord. And through a number of different circumstances, he left the ministry and he went into business and he became a really wealthy businessman. Until he didn't. Until he lost a lot of that. And he started to get really frustrated with God. And he was aiming for the will of God even as a businessman but as he started to get frustrated with God, I watched as he started to get a little bit off course just by 10 degrees or so here. And one of the first things that he did was start to feel sorry for himself. And he went year after year and day after day of this despondency that led him to drink a little bit too much alcohol. Excuse me. I apologize. I'm not trying to step on you. And he's going way off course now as he drinks once again a little bit too much alcohol. And if you stop right here, you're not that far from your destination. 
You just walk back and get back on course and you eat your crow and you apologize to the Lord and apologize to others well where you need. But the further you go, just being 10% off, the more difficult it gets. And then all of a sudden, the next thing I see is this brother who is ejecting from Christian community. And he says, I'm not going to go to church anymore. I'm done with that spiritual practice for a while. I feel like God has let me down. And the next thing he does is he ejects from his small group community. And by now he's way over here, and I'm not going to climb over you. Okay, he's ejected from Christian community. And I'm telling you, friends, when you eject from Christian community, you are a sitting duck waiting to be shot. And that's where he was. And then all of a sudden, he starts to take on these false beliefs that I gave so much to God, and God hasn't given back to me the way I deserve. And before you know it, he is way over here and completely off course, and it's so difficult to get back on course. You know what I'm saying? And what he embraced in the midst of all of this was a false prosperity gospel that you will find on TV on a regular basis that if I give my resources to God, if I give my time and my money and my energy to God, then he is obliged to give something back to me and he better make me prosper. And that is a false lie from the pit of hell. What God invites us to do is to give out of what he has given us because he's given us it all. And so we say, yes, I want to give back to you with my time and my resources and the gifts that you have given to me, and, and God, would you keep me on course as I do so? Now, the good word is, ugh, that seems taller than it did three years ago. <laughs> the good word is, even if you end up with that Christmas tree back there, when this was the will of God, he still wants you. He still wants you. There's still room. If you're still breathing, there's still time to reject counterfeits and repent and return to your first love, which is what he invites for. You you may be in that spot that you've embraced some counterfeits and you've gotten way off course. There's no better day than today to get back on course again. You don't know what tomorrow will hold. You don't know what tomorrow will hold. So you reject counterfeits, you remember your first love, and you return daily to the presence of Christ. What are the practices, what are the habits that help you to return daily to the presence of Christ? Here's the greatest warning. I know there's a bunch of warnings in here, but here's the greatest warning to the church in Ephesus. It's uh, verse 5. It says, if you do not repent, these are the words of Jesus, If you do not repent, I, that's Jesus, will come to you and I will remove your lampstand from its place. The lampstand is the presence of God. You say, why would Jesus ever do that? Why would he remove his his spirit from us? It's, It's this. If you have no love for God as a congregation, then you're not a church. A congregation with no love for God, a congregation with no love for others, actually ceases to be a church. Now, that's not us. This is one of the most loving churches I've ever been a part of. This church is incredibly loving. We see that again and again and again. But this could be a warning for you. If you've been far 
from the love of God and you've accepted counterfeits, return. Lest you lose the lampstand in your life. We have to wrestle with that. You know, one of the keys of the Christian life and something that we don't teach nearly enough is you have some control over your affections. There's things that you can do that lead you into the presence of Christ, which are disciplines given to us from Jesus himself that have control over our affections, at least to some degree. And so sometimes you may not feel like engaging in in Christian practices that have helped you in the past, but you choose to do so, and your affections very well may follow. So there are times, I've talked about my prayer chair this year, there are times that I don't want to go into my prayer chair. There are times I don't want to spend 20 minutes a day doing that. There are times that I don't want to do my daily Bible reading. There are times that I don't really want to go to church on Sunday morning. Is a pastor allowed to say that? It's true. It's true. But we go to church when we're on vacation on Sunday morning. We find some other church to go to because I need to be around other brothers and sisters and I need to hear the word of God. And there are times that I might not feel like going to life group, but, but you choose to go. You commit to it. You, you, you maintain these strong, non-negotiable commitments. And what inevitably happens is while you may not feel close to God each and every time you do each and every one of those spiritual practices, in time as you consistently do them, they will have a consistent effect. Because what they'll do is bring you into the presence of God more and more. These kinds of practices, like I just noted, are the kinds of practices that are necessary for ongoing presence with God. I love the way Psalm 16 says it. It says, you make known to me the path of life. And in your right hand is fullness of joy, pleasures forevermore. Think of that. In the presence of God is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. It's not that God is some kind of cosmic killjoy, doesn't want us to have any fun. He wants us to have the most fun. He wants us to have the greatest pleasures. He wants us to have the most joy. It's not that our desires are too strong. It's as C.S. Lewis put it, our desires are too weak. And we are far too easily pleased by lesser things than the presence, the love, worship of the living God. He is our creator, and our hearts are most satisfied when we find our rest in him. And so let me just ask you as I close, how does this message from John land for you? Perhaps it's a comfort for you that you know you have focused on your first love and you aren't perfect by any means, none of us are, but you're focusing on your first love. And Jesus would say, well done, thanks be to God, keep it up, you will be rewarded for that. And perhaps for others, the warning is, you've started to get about 10% off course. You've started to embrace some counterfeit teaching. 
Start to embrace some counterfeit pleasures that really aren't for you. Well, thanks be to God because today's an opportunity to come back on course. So thank you, God, for that as well. It's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance and brings us near to his salvation and leaves no regret. Whoever has ears to hear, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear what the Spirit of God says to the church. Would you pray with me? Oh, Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. I thank you, Lord Jesus, that you're not the kind of God who will just leave me in my comfort. But you are the kind of God who will pierce me at times and challenge me and confront me and lead me to repentance. Friends, I know that's a scary word. It's a big word that's no longer part of our language as Americans. But all the word repent means is to turn. That's all it means. Turn from a path that's not healthy and turn back toward the will of God. That's all it means. And so, Father, perhaps you're convicting someone in this room today that they need to repent for something, that they've gotten off of course in some small way. And they don't want to get off course in such a way that it's so very difficult to get back on course. And for others, uh, we've just lost our affection for God and we want to be known again as the disciples whom Jesus loved. And I pray that for my friends in this room, that you'd let them know that if they've actually given their hearts to you in a genuine way, that they've surrendered to you as the leader of their lives, as their king, then they are disciples whom Jesus loves. I wonder if you would just do a little business with God right now. If in the honesty of your heart you would say, I've, I've fallen a little bit after a false teaching or a false pleasure and I've given my heart to it some. And God, I, I need to confess that to you. I, I need to repent that to you. Would, would you just raise your hand and say, God, would you please forgive me? You don't need to say the words, just raise your hand and say that to him. Yeah, thank you, God. I see literally a hundred hands raised, as it should be, because each of us is in that place on a regular basis, that we fall short of your glory, and we need to get back on track. I talk about remembering your first love, and, and maybe you've never known the first love of Jesus and the love that he has for you. And, and, and you say, man, I, I want to know this Christ that would forgive me of my scarlet letters. I want to be forgiven as far as the east is from the west. And I want to be a child of God, a disciple whom Jesus loves. And you haven't made that commitment to him or you've been away from him for many, many, many years. Would you be so bold as to just raise your hand right now and say, I, I need you right now, Jesus, please forgive me. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for these brothers and sisters. I see you. 
I see the five or six that just raised their hand. I see you right here, brother. I see you right here. I thank you, Lord Jesus. I thank you, Lord Jesus. The promise is, from first to last, you are forgiven by Christ. You are given entry into the family of God. You belong to Him. Receive the lampstand, the presence of Christ. You are His. Thank you, Jesus, for your good work in us. Keep doing it. We invite you. We thank you, Lord, for the work you're doing here. All praise and glory goes to you. And God's people say, amen. Amen. Hey, would you give God a round of applause? He just brought a number of people to him. You, you might have just repented for the very first time, and today you are a Christian. You, you might have just repented again so that you say to God, I need you and I can't do it on my own. That's wise. Do that on a weekly basis. Keep short accounts with God. Don't let it go for a long time. I, I ask God to examine my heart every day because I know I'm such a wicked sinner. And yet still, even more, I'm a saint. Praise be to God. And so are you.